0: Okay. The the this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that believes the interests of the country should easily and clearly override party politics. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me I have a very special guest on the podcast today. Now, if you're of a certain age or just take an interest in politics, the name Dr. John Houston requires no introduction. But because we have a diverse audience, some of whom won't remember Dr. Houston's time in politics, let me tell you a little bit about his background. Now, I started to compile this list myself, but I found his profile on the ANU website where he's a professor. And frankly, that's much better than what I'd come up with. So I'm gonna use that. And by the way, if after listening to this, you don't feel like you're wasting your life, just check out this list. Here we go. Dr. Houston has had several careers in academia, bureaucracy, business, politics, and the media. He's currently a professor in the Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU, and an adjunct professor at Curtin, UTS, Canberra, and Griffith Universities. Having been a professor and head of the School of Economics at UNSW and Professor of Management and Dean, graduate at Macquarie Graduate School of Management at Macquarie University. Doesn't stop there. He's worked at the Australian Treasury, the IMF, the Reserve Bank, the UN and the ADB. In business, he was a founder of Macquarie Bank, chairman of ABN Amaro, and the chair and director of a host of public and private companies with current positions in insurance broking, renewable energy and funds management and investment banking. Um, chair of the Business Council for Sustainable Development Australia, chair of Bioenergy Australia, patron of the Smart Energy Council. The list goes on and on. And of course, in politics, uh, he was the former opposition leader and that leader of the Liberal Party. Uh, That's a a spectacular CV, John. I've done it nowhere near enough justice, but our listeners can tell by the the sheer length and breadth of that list. You're a very established um, and very credentialed man. You've got a heap of experience. So thank you very, very much, uh, Dr. John Houston, for making some time for us, Fort Motley full Money. I will say too, if you're not already reading his column, jump on, if you haven't got a Fairfax subscription or a Nine subscription, do it now. The columns in Fairfax are spectacular reading. All right, with that introduction, John, um, I'll kick off somewhere. It's a it's a big CV to try and tackle. Uh, Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me start with, I guess some of your more recent public um, commentary. You've been pretty active um, publicly, whether it's been in the paper or just in in general, calling for some big policy changes. A few I've seen recently, a broad article on tax reform, and I love the headline in the, in the SMH. I'm not sure if it was yours, John. Take it from one who's been burnt attempting tax reform. Now's the time <laughs> to try again. I, I love that. Um, you've, you've called for truth in political advertising in, a, in a, um, a piece of work done by the Australia Institute. And you have been a long-time uh, proponent of real serious action on climate change. I've got a guess, mate, it must be great to be able to speak your mind with free of party politics and, and party constraints as you can kind of rub the waterfront and, uh, and share your thoughts across the board.
1: Well, it was an, an issue when I was leader too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the party's less tolerant, though, than the media on, on what you're well, allowed I, to say. Well,
1: I said in my pre-selection that I basically am an Australian first and a member of the Liberal Party
0: second. So if it's not in the national interest, oh. I might have to change Liberal Party policy. John, that is, I, I, I'm going to throw my, my script out already. That does strike – so in the US in particular, I mean, you may or may not want to get into party politics in the US, but it, it strikes me as amazing – and maybe I should be shouldn't be surprised, but I am – but the sheer number of Republicans, I'm not a Donald Trump fan, I'm happy to say that I don't get political very often, but um, Donald Trump to me has, has been a, a disaster for the Republican Party, yet there are very, very few prepared to actually say anything against him. Is it the size of the, is it the backlash? Is it, is it the the sheer kind of loyalties of the tribalism? What do you put this down to, the, the fact that no one's prepared to speak out against someone who has trashed the the history of the Republican Party, again, regardless of your politics, um, and Mitt Romney probably, and maybe John McCain, the late John McCain, they only two really serious Republicans to stand up and say, hey, this guy's not our guy.
1: Yeah, I think you're starting to see them peel off a bit now as they're getting yeah. closer to the election in November. But um, he's intimidated a lot of them into, the, into supporting him. Mm. I mean, uh, and, uh, you know, I guess they've always hoped that he'd come good. But I think today when you look at America with the extent of the economic and social disruption, unrest and so on, and the fact that, you know, rather than making America great, he's basically trashed it. Um, You know, it's a classic example of what happens when an individual or a party puts, his his end game really is just winning or re-election in his case rather than good government. He has no idea of what is required to be in government or to manage a government or to manage people, to mm-hmm. develop ideas. It's all about him and, um, you know, very egotistically winning, re-winning election, re-election, proving everyone else wrong. So he doesn't uh, listen to anyone. He doesn't, um, any anything he says is fact until tomorrow when he changes his mind. <laughs> exactly. But, but uh, you know, um, anything anyone else says is fake news. <laughs> <laughs> and he attacks anybody that dares to disagree with him he's burnt so many people from his staff from the bureaucracy from the party you know over over the time he's been there so i just think he'll go down in history as probably the worst president ever but uh, he will have done irreparable damage in terms of dividing that nation and Well, he claims to be the great negotiator and, and, uh, you know, the Chinese saw him coming, uh, you know. North Korea saw him coming, Putin saw him coming, you know. He hasn't done very well on that front. And domestically, you know, it's all about the economy to him and uh, he just misread the virus and still misreading it, you know. It's being, uh, we're seeing reinfection rates at at an alarming pace in key states where basically they were Republican states that he one way or another forced to... Ease up early, reduce the lockdowns early. So, you know, I think it's, uh, it's 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 instructive in many ways. But I think from Australia's point of view, we should have we we should have
0: drawn a line in the sand a long time ago in relation with him. Can we do that, John? Is, is there a way for a country like Australia? We see, of course, China uh, on you know, the other part of the other part of the world throwing kind of shaded us, literally, but also figuratively in terms of the way they're changing this, like trade policy, the barley tariffs. Can we afford to fight the, these big guys, or do we well, have to just know, you, go you on with to, these things?
1: You have to stand up for what you believe in. I mean, I, I remember when uh, Turnbull went to see him, for example, he kept Turnbull waiting for three or four hours. I okay. would have just left a note and said, "Catch you yes, I'll <laughs> catch you next time," you know.
0: And when, have, when Morrison well was
1: there, so. he did yeah. one of those press conferences which were far ranging, you know, go for an hour or something, on all sorts of subjects about which we either have no interest or certainly wouldn't agree with him. And Morrison yeah. just sat there grinning, you know. And then, of course, uh, Morrison was opening a, a, an Australian business in Ohio, and Trump turns up and turns it into a rally. You know, you just say no. You just, you know, you draw your line. I spent a day in the White House with George Bush Sr. I think uh, it's, it, these are situations are manageable. You can't sort of go after the events say, oh, I wish that hadn't happened or bad staff work or whatever. Because yeah. basically, you know, you had a chance to dissociate yourself from those positions and you should have. And now, of course, we've been sucked into basically being seen, uh, ir- irrespective of our motivation, we've been seen as a mouthpiece for the US and calling on the, you know, a reassessment of, of um, Chinese trading status as no no longer a developing country or, you know, calling for a a genuine inquiry into the sources of uh, the pandemic and and, and the spread of the pandemic. We're seen by the Chinese easily as a mouthpiece for America, which you know, we really should not be in that position. We have good good motivation ourselves wanting to understand where the pandi- pandemic came from and how it spread and how it was managed or mal- managed, mismanaged by some different countries right around the world. That's in everyone's interest. But um, not to be seen as, uh, was it Howard used to refer to himself as Deputy Sheriff to George W. Bush? Yes. Christ, that would that, take some thinking. You know, <laughs> well, would want to be Deputy Sheriff to George W. Bush, but... Um, we are now seen as deputy sheriffs, you know, and that's and not the position <laughs> we
0: should, should be in. It's not in our national interest. And Donald and Trump George, have to do a Yeah, that's right. that's right. Uh, does that, is, what do you think the motivation of that is, John? Is, is it a case of we just feel like we can't upset the Yanks at all or is it a case of there's just some sort of inherent belief that Trump is worth following? There's some sort of, uh, you know, fellow travelership between Scott Morrison and Donald Trump. What do you put that obsequiousness down to?
1: Well, initially, of course, when Trump came on the scene and he won in pretty special circumstances, I and mean, he didn't win the popular vote, but he won the, the four Rust Belt states, which he needed to do to win. And, uh, you know, he won enough of the Electoral College votes to get across the line. He surprised a number of people. He was lucky with a low voter turnout and all the minorities and in independents that supported Obama, for example, didn't turn up to vote. So, I mean, it really helped him. Very special circumstances. Well, there was a tendency then to start apologising for the guy or, you know, tell this story that when he was talking to Putin, Putin said to him, what, what's Donald J. Trump? What's the J stand for? And Trump responded, apparently responded by saying genius. You know, they've been looking for <laughs> no the genius. They've been that's only that's true. Genius, <laughs> and there is no genius there, right? This, he has no modus <laughs> operandi except calling the shots on the day in what he perceives to be his own interests. And, and not worrying about the consequences, not thinking through, just just battling on. And um, so there's been this tendency for a fair bit of his first term, to, of this term, to to uh, try and apologise for him or to look for the genius. Oh, he must be a, there must be an ulterior motive here. He must be smart. He must have some end game right, as right. if he's clever and that there's a chess, chess game underway. But basically, <laughs> he's not. And he's made enormous mistakes. And each time you get layers of people sort of apologising for him or... I think that process has run its course now and obviously it came to a head with the pandemic. I can remember back, I forget the exact date, about 28th of February, I think, you're saying there are only 15 or 50 cases or whatever. we have beaten it. We're on, our, we're on our way home. You know, look at where they are today and they are nowhere near seeing the worst of it yet. So I think in terms of that and then in terms of the economic consequences, social consequences of that, it's just staggering. The, the nation is so divided uh, that, um, you know, I don't think... You can, look, just step back from that. We should just, we're a small, middle-ranking, you know, com- com- country's been able to punch above our weight in a number of forums over time, including climate change early days in, in negotiating the Kyoto Protocol, for example. But we, we certainly have done a number of, of, of significant areas. We should just settle down and think about what is in our national interest and have a hard-headed national interest strategy based on our values, based on our objectives, based on our resources, based on, you know, the sort of society we want this country to be. And when it fits to be associated with the United States and that alliance, fine. When it fits to do a, improve your trading relationship with China, fine. When it, in, it involves improving our relationship with countries like Indonesia and South Korea and, and Vietnam and Malaysia, Indonesia and so on, these are very significant opportunities for Australia, which it all sort of washes by and we don't seem to have a strategy and others take advantage of it.
0: Principle's an important thing, right? If you, if you stick with that, you don't have to worry about where you are today or yesterday or tomorrow. You're simply known for who you are and people will actually respect, they may not agree with you, but they'll respect you for it rather than feeling like you're going to blow in the wind depending on who's in power and who uh, you're following bl- bl- you know, blindly.
1: Ca- so much of politics today is just the short-term game. Yeah. You know, when I lost to Keating in 93... And, you know, and I advocated uh, very broad-based reform in every area of public policy, but everyone focused on the GST. And this was an area I thought he wouldn't attack me on because when he had a GST package in 85 and Hawke undid it with doing a backroom deal in a motel with Bill Kelty and took it out, Keating was saying he'd fight for it for the rest of his life. And there I thought, well, that, you know, man, of principle, he's got a passion, He'll, he'll stay. No, no, he used it as a mechanism to create a massive scare campaign against me. Yeah. And when, when we went back to Parliament after that, he said to me one day, he said, uh, the first day back, he said, uh, look, you've got to understand, John, that to me, politics is just a game. And I'll say or do whatever I have to to win. Now, I had never thought of it. That I thought it was fairly serious business managing the country. And, and uh, as opposition leader, I'd actually taken positions in front of the government, calling on them to cut tariffs or, you know, put up interest or whatever it was to, to improve the economic circumstance, to avoid the recession that he ended up having anyway. And, um, you know, it's not the game today. Today it's it's just very short term. It's negative, focused, score points on each other, shift the blame to the other side. And so all the big policy issues don't get serious debate or mature debate. They just get kicked down the road. And um, that's why I think this COVID experience is very important because it's a, it puts a stake in the ground and says, here's a warning. This is a bit of a dress rehearsal for what could happen in a lot of areas if you don't listen to the science, if you don't pay attention to the advice, if you don't prepare. You know, we go through the bushfire season. This is a Morrison strategy. Go through the bushfire season. It'll ultimately end. People's memories will fade. They won't remember that I went to, you know, Hawaii for whatever. And, um, you know, the same with the drought, where we should be, say, in case of the drought, making our soils more drought resistant, you know, and there were established practices and farming practices and technologies to do that. And you would think that you'd learn from a crisis. No, no, we just move on. And so the initial response to COVID was, don't worry, you know, we'll snap back, we'll bounce back. Well, it's not going to happen. And they're finally having to realise that it's not going to happen or admit anyway <laughs> that it's not going to happen. Then we might have high unemployment for years to come. We'll have debts for decades to come. And, uh, you know, these are, these are it's a time for me, I think, right now we should be stopping and saying, as a country, saying, right, let's get a blank sheet of paper. Let's think about where we want this country and society to be in 20 or 30 years' time. And let's start planning the transition in a series of stages uh, through to then. And that'll involve all sorts of areas reform. There's a lot to be done in education. We see that the exposure of the universities to foreign students. We see it in health. You know, and we see it uh, in particular in areas like aged care, but also in the infrastructure, in defence, uh, in tax, in productivity policies. I mean, all of them are possible to be reset to achieve an objective. And you mentioned climate. We should aim to be a low carbon society by the middle part of the century. Don't get hung up on targets and just start doing it. Make the transition to renewable energy, which is much cheaper than anything else and reliable. And in transport, we should be moving, accelerating the pace to electric vehicles, autonomous trucking, the electrification of transport generally. In agriculture, regenerative agriculture, as I said, make the, drought, make the soils more drought resistant. Give the farmers another income by improving the carbon content of their soil and selling the credits. In, in buildings, in industrial processes, you, know, you go through sector by sector. There's a strategy there which you could implement over 20 or 30 years should make a fundamental difference to what this country is going to be like in 20 or 30 years. But if we keep letting it drift, the standard of living is going to start to fall. We reckon it's hard for our kids today compared to what it was for us. It'll be a lot harder in the future when they're yeah. dealing with the big issues of this government, just for these governments, recent governments, have just neglected.
0: Yeah. John, I'll vote for you when you're running. <laughs> No. I had my <laughs> run and I... I can't afford the divorce. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, too. But you, you've, you've given a broad brush kind of what, what needs to be done there. I, I, let me take you back just to COVID for a second, then we'll go back to the other issues. The government, I, I agree with you, were slow off the blocks. I thought that the policy they implemented was, you know, there were always things we could disagree with, but it was fast and it was big. And I thought that, would, that once they got around to it, it's not fast enough probably, but once they decided they needed to do something, it was money now, act now, get the money out there, keep things in as good a shape as possible. Yeah, you know, I can argue with a couple of things, including the superannuation withdrawal, which I thought was a debacle. But that seemed okay. Your, your thoughts on what they've done so far and then maybe what they're planning to do, what you do differently?
1: Well, it's hard to criticise them in the sense that they've had, they have brought the, the infection rate down. Yeah. I'm not saying it's going to stay down. And I personally don't think you can keep... Uh, you can, you're going to have to keep our external borders locked down until we get a vaccine that's globally deployed and effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a big hit. It's a big hit on education, a big hit on tourism in particular. Um, but, um, you know, I, I can remember when that first plane from Wuhan arrived back in about the 20-odd of January.
0: That's right, yeah. I
1: said to some friends they should quarantine everyone on that plane today
0: mm.
1: and every f- flight in or out since then should. after that should be until you know the extent of this. Well, they came out not long after that and declared it a, a pandemic ahead of mm. anybody else in the world but then they didn't do much for a couple of weeks. So that if it's a pandemic, you should act immediately. Now, I don't want to be seem to be wise after the event, I said it at the time, but, but if we cut another month off, for example, we would have been even further advanced. And uh, but the difficulty is, you know, um, the positives are they have relied more on scientific and medical advice. They have, they have set ideology aside, which is quite, they're two quite significant things. And it has been to the benefit of of bringing the virus under control to some extent. I mean, we are lucky that we are a small island country, you know, that is isolated and we can isolate ourselves, yeah, but still yeah. we've got the possibility of internal, you know, transmission and infection, which we're starting to see happen. And... You know, there's arguments about, oh, don't worry about schools. You know, they, it's, it doesn't happen to school kids. Well, they've closed about a dozen schools in New South Wales alone the last couple of weeks. Right. Yes, it does. I mean, children can be carriers. And, you know, we didn't know enough about it. We went off. So that side of it, um, you know, they've got the medical advice. Basically, they took it and they moved. In terms of the economic side, they were very much, you know, what the hell are we going to do? This is lockdowns and social distancing, closures and so on are going to, set us right back and don't forget, we didn't close some of the big sectors. We really didn't close manufacturing, didn't close mining, didn't close construction, big sectors. Uh, but we did close rooms, tourism to a large extent and um, obviously hospitality and, and accommodation and so on. Yes, they'd really suffered. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, there's no basis which to, for, by which they could judge how much to do and how fast. But they moved with an initial package of about $16 billion. And then we all said, well, that's not going to be enough. And then when it got to notionally $300 billion, uh, they were getting close to the mark. Whatever the number is between 16 and $300, they have taken those sort of decisions. But... A lot of that was put together very quickly and not thought through. JobKeeper, for example, is the most conspicuous example because they've admitted a $60 billion error <laughs> you know, My uh, friends. In, in estimating, yeah. but they still don't know its effect. Yeah. And they don't know, it, you know, it, it, we don't really know how this relates to unemployment because we know the unemployment number as measured is misleading. To be, You are declared or you are counted as an employee if you work more than one hour a week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and uh, you know, so th- that's that's you know not a definition most people's acceptable definition of employment. And then if you give up looking for work, which JobKeeper in case, encourages you to do, then the unemployment numbers fall. Uh, if you uh, you know leave the workforce, the you uh, know the uh, you know the numbers change. So the real number is somewhere between thirteen and twenty percent on how you count it. It's declared at seven point one. Now, that to wash through the system is going to take quite some time. it take a lot of time to actually deal with that effectively uh, because they don't really know the true numbers. And we knew going into this that although the measured rate of unemployment was 5.1, the underemployment one was 8 or so, so we were in the low teens in terms of excess capacity. We're now probably in the low 20% in terms of adding those sort of numbers together. That is a big transition for a country the size of Australia with some industries still closed, some heavy employing industries still closed. So that transition is tough for them. But, um, you know, and the Reserve Bank standing behind them has helped. Uh, It's certainly cushioned the banking system, but, you know, a lot of that's still to come. You delay people's mortgage payments, you delay their rents, and so on, they ultimately have to pay them. (laughs) They might have gone into additional debt to do that. That's still going to be there. We went into the... the, the, uh, The COVID period with the highest level of household debt in the world, of nearly 200% of household disposable income, about 120 plus percent of GDP. And these are monstrous numbers, already very exposed, large corporate debts. Although the public sector debt doubled under the government, it was still a relatively low number by world standards. But now aggregate debt across all that is pretty significant. And uh, so we've got a big debt constraint hanging out there as a result of this, and They've admitted that the debt number might go over a trillion, and that's going to take decades to re- repay. Let alone you've got to service it. They're lucky interest rates are low, right? Exactly. Servicing costs are low. Yeah. But um, how do how do we? Um, it's a very strange world. I noticed yesterday the Austrians borrowed a hundred uh, hundred year money it's government amazing, bond man. for a hundred years at point nine of one percent. Yeah. You reckon it's going to last that low, low interest rates, <laughs> low inflation for hundred years? I don't know. I won't have to be held
0: accountable for that statement. But <laughs> it's a pretty I good deal it. if you're if you're the one borrowing, though, right? I mean, if you're if you're lending at point nine, that that's the tough one. If you can, I mean, I guess if I could borrow a point nine, I think I'd take it. Inflation will probably inflate that away. Let alone whatever productive use well, I put it to. There have been
1: examples. I think places like Venezuela, others have done long bond issues in the past. And <laughs> They're sure. already underwater in a matter of just a few years. But yeah, yeah. We probably aren't going to see a rapid in pickup in inflation But uh, and interest rates are going to stay low mm. uh, for a long time. But, I mean, we're not if we're not making any other adjustments to the system, we're pretending we can go back to the way we were and she'll be okay. Yeah. I mean, we can't.
0: Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Give me some optimism. What would you do from here to try and deal with some of those issues? If Josh or or Scott pick up the phone and say, John, we need your help, come down and spend a week for us to help us design a strategy, what what do you do differently for either what they're planning to do or just in general, what do you do from here to get things back on track as quickly as possible?
1: I guess the first thing you say is only a week. (laughs) (laughs) And the second thing you say is, can I get rid of some of your colleagues? <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: Mate, it uh, seems it, if you you're desperate, you thing, might get both of those. <laughs>
1: the third thing you might say is that, uh, look, take any one of the areas. Climate's a classic example. We yes. do need to make that transition and we can make it really easily because we have the natural resources in sun and wind and the storage technologies and, and so on to, to actually make that transition relatively easily in the power sector. Uh, we can certainly, uh, you know, I think electrification of the vehicle sector will happen very quickly. You know, as soon as the big major—not not a Tesla per se—but as soon as the big car manufacturers like Toyota or Mercedes or somebody bring out an affordable electric car with an you know, acceptable range of about a thousand kilometers, people are going to buy them, and and everyone's going to have one, and it's going to happen like that. Yeah. I mean, I looked the other day that it only took ten years from 1903 to 1913 to make the transition from horse-drawn vehicles to petrol-driven vehicles in the United States. And that was at a time where you don't have the social media network and the marketing strategies and the, you know, the information streams and, the, and so on that we have today. It will happen much quicker when it happens. So get on those sort of trends in terms of, uh, in terms of um, agriculture, for example, the regenerative agriculture I mentioned is really simple. Change from chemical fertilizers to organic fertilizers. Shallow till your soil, manage the land clearing, do reforestation, rotate your cattle with your crops, these sort of things, all improve the carbon content of the soil. You can sell those carbon credits as a farmer and you've got another income source. Do the same in buildings, do the same in industrial processes. There's a whole strategy built around one thing, which is the desire to be low carbon by the middle part of the century. But beyond that, we've got a lot of other issues. You know, We've got waste and uh, we used to export our waste and now they, those who imported it whether they were Chinese Malaysian Indonesian or whatever they won't take it anymore so we need to have a way of taking that waste and turning it into into viable product uh, into uh, you know whether it's in power or, or, or a whole host of things and i'm talking waste anything from green waste sewage household garbage industrial waste animal waste whatever can be recycled into into a a form. It can mostly go into electricity or a biofuel, but it could also go into bioplastics and uh, and hand washers, you know, all the sort of things that you, ethanol, all the things that you uh, imagine could happen. Now they're big industries. I was chairman of a company that built a household garbage recycling plant at Eastern Creek on a landfill in the year 2000 to show the car government that you didn't need to stick it in the hole, which is a barbaric practice. It leaches into the water table. It breaks the carbon cycle and emits methane gas. Why don't you sort it and extract the the methane before it goes in the in the hole? And uh, you know it, it's a viable business proposition. So we should have waste recycling businesses. We should have biofuel businesses, whether it's ethanol or biodiesel or green diesel or whatever. They're all, and because the waste is spread right across Australia, in regional centres right across Australia, you could have those plants in every regional centre, a refinery, a small refinery, a recycling business. I mean, these are easy, and they're all job-intensive, investment-intensive ways of growing the economy. So there, there's just a couple of areas. Fuel security. We import the dirtiest fuel in the world. Second dirtiest, I should say. We come behind Mexico, but we're the second dirtiest fuel in the world. Yeah. Burning fuel in vehicles kills more people than the road toll Australia-wide, and um, you know our sulphur content in the in petrol is like 150 parts per million. Uh, the global standard uh, Euro 6 standard is 10 parts per million. New Zealand moved to that in 2018. We're not going to move to it to 2027. But again, you know, we want fuel security. We don't have enough petrol around the service stations. We're way short—only a third or half the global standard for fuel security. So why aren't we producing our own fuel? Why do we rely on 44 ships a year bringing that dirty fuel from um, from Singapore and other and other parts? Uh, we rely and the oil lobby frightens governments and saying we're going to stop refining. 90% of the fuel we use is not, not refined in Australia. You know, and they've closed a whole string of refineries in the last 10 years. The government's going the wrong way, the same as these ideas of using gas. You know, we're going to bring a pipeline from northwestern Western Australia, north I should Western Australia, down to the east coast. That's never going to be commercially viable. You've got to do it for about two bucks a gigajoule. That will never happen. And who'd uh, build the pipeline? And you'd probably have to change the gauge of the pipeline as you go across state borders. <laughs> you know, these ideas, the which they are getting uh, a lot of currency in the COVID recovery group because they've got yeah. a fossil fuel influence, a gas influence, yeah. don't make any sense. There are big projects that we could do uh, that, uh, in transport, in social infrastructure that would be serious in this country if we, if we could borrow money globally now, long term, very cheaply, and we should use that as an infrastructure revolution. There are plenty of things to do if you want to do it. But uh, if you think that you can just make a few marginal changes and go back to the way we were, uh, uh, it isn't going to happen. I mean, it was Einstein who said that if you keep trying to do the same thing day in, day out, and expect different results, you're bordering on insanity.
0: Exactly. I mean, again, I won't encourage you to run, John, because I, I value your marriage. You probably value it more than I do, but uh, I don't want, to, don't want to get you in trouble with your with your lovely wife. That being said, no one, this is nobody's policy platform. Maybe more worryingly, you've come from what is traditionally the right of politics in an environment where these ideas make perfect sense to me, I'm sure to all of our listeners, make absolute perfect sense, and yet <laughs> the, the Liberal Party, the coalition aren't supporting it. Labor aren't game enough to go there at all, whether for ideological or political reasons uh, I, I, I mean you know to the casual listener this is almost a, a Greens policy I, where is the I don't know what I'm asking other than how do, we, how do we get these ideas raised and discussed and implemented? It's funny you say that because you know
1: I, I think I was elected leader of the Liberal Party because I was a conservative um, right-wing economist believe in market forces wherever possible, but I need to make the markets work, you know, you need a proper regulatory structure and so on. And, uh, you know, uh, but I was a small liberal when it came to social policy. And so I did appeal to the broad church of the party. I didn't try to drive them down any particular narrow, narrow social agenda. And I think that there is a wide cross-section of people today who have moved beyond their parties, you know, I, I remember the same-sex marriage vote, for example, which, um, you know, um, was a very controversial issue and a very difficult issue for some of our political parties. But the National Party assumed that the majority of their seats had vote no, and 15 or 16 of their seats voted yes, and some of them very strongly, and that caught them by surprise. And Tony Abbott, he thought he was going to get a sort of a, a draw uh, 75% vote against it. You know, like, he he didn't get it and they don't get it. And as a result of that, I think you're seeing a lot of movement in terms of old political allegiances to particular factions, particular ideologies. And basically people are becoming, you know, most people are economically quite rational. They know you've got to have money to spend money and you don't want to borrow too much money if you can't service it or you can't use it productively. For, For example, but on the other side, they are concerned about social issues, big ones, age care, you know, reliable power. The government will talk about what about age care? What about about disability care? What about uh, a lot of other the you know the the low and disadvantaged groups, the unemployed? Uh, Here's a government that will stick with a a, a new start allowance. They're still talking about going back from job seeker to the old new start, forty bucks a week. They can't live on forty bucks a week, forty bucks a day. Should yeah. they can't live on forty bucks a day? Yeah. Most yeah. people can't. It's way short of the poverty line. Now, there's nothing. That's common sense. It's not. It's not ideology. Uh, and they, they get hung up and try to say, oh, we think you know the best best um, welfare. <laughs> you give somebody a job. Fine, give them one. You haven't got any to give, them. <laughs> exactly. and they're not creating that's them right. either. You know. That's so right. these, these arguments are really quite spurious.
0: Yeah. And is, it, is it the people moving away from the parties, John, or the parties moving away from the people? If I think about the Malcolm Frasers of the world who found himself, you know, suddenly kind of almost persona non grata in the Liberal Party, he he seemed, and my memory might be fading or, or maybe wrong, but, you know, the Fraser was the Liberal Party in the early 80s. That The party seems to have moved away. Today's Liberal Party, and again, for those a bit older, feels almost a bit more like the old DLP, you know, the, the, the change, as yeah, you say, so between... Again-
1: Again, it's labels. I, I really resist yeah, right. labels. I don't like any labels in politics because I don't think they mean anything and they mislead people. But I worked for Fraser for nearly seven years yeah. and, um, you know, he had a particular image in politics and it didn't wasn't right. helped by the way he got there with a, you know the, the, the dismissal and so on. Yeah, yeah. But I saw him introduce land rights in the Northern Territory way ahead of his time. I saw him launch Multicultural Australia way ahead of his time. That's right. I saw him uh, deal with the Vietnamese boat people without going yes. to Cabinet. Yeah. As he said, late, if I'd gone to Cabinet, they wouldn't have approved it. <laughs> but he solved yeah. the problem, right? He dealt yeah. with it. Yeah. When he left politics, he started to talk more about refugees, mm. for example. He had a perfect track record on refugees that everyone chose to ignore. So yeah. I'm not yeah. going to take his side one way or another. I've written about it in the past, but I do think, but, um, you know, it's not as if he changed. Mm. A lot of what he did, he didn't get credit for at the time or it wasn't focused on and he didn't, he never sold it anyway. He never tried to explain it. He made a very strong stand against apartheid in South Africa. People forget that. That's right, yep. You know, and uh, so I do think that there's, a, there's a you know, again, labels get in your way. Just look at who they are, what they do, what they stand for. Um, we could get Malcolm to do things, uh, you know, like the reform of the financial system, which was against their policy, hmm. you know, and it was against Labor Party policy too. I mean, when Hawke was elected in 83, his policy platform had bank nationalisations key Keelan. That's right. Now they go and licence 16 foreign banks and float the currency hmm. because it was inevitable that that's the direction we were going to go as a nation and they just smart enough to get on it rather yeah. than try and resist it. But today you've got them just resistant. you know many of
0: these ideas are to be resisted not to be fostered and nurtured because of the focus groups john because of short-term thinking why why can't the current crop on either side both sides again the labels don't matter why is there a dearth of of as kidding himself said the vision thing you may not you may not want that characterization but you know that, that idea of the why are people you know again the hawk keatings the Howards, the Phrasers, these people were very different politically, but I'm happy to talk about some of the big issues. I remember uh, Bob Hawke yeah, and John Howard sitting on a stage at the National Press Club. And, and John Howard, I think, said, and Hawke agreed or vice versa, Australians don't mind change if it's fair, if it's explained fairly, Hook nodded on. It was, again, those the old warriors post-politics saying there is a way to get there. Yeah, but to- we don't see on either side to get there.
1: Because of the short-term nature of politics where we move every day from one issue to another location, another subject, another you know, set of people, Have a hard hat. Yep. you know, you know and, and it's all image stuff. It's all um, yeah. colour and movement, as Keating used to call it. You know, it's not, it's <laughs> not substance in terms, of, yeah. in terms of government. Then you've gone away from the days when somebody was prepared to launch a policy idea mm. and prosecute the case for it day in, day out at every level of society from the kitchen table through to the big con- conventional summit you know those days are gone they don't argue from one day to the next look at morrison being an advertising guy he focuses on the headline announcement you know he's putting the $100 billion into this or you know what, and then you know like the bushfire report uh, appeals uh, support i should say and then you go through a few weeks or a few months and you see whether that money actually went where it was supposed to go no i never quite made it i didn't qualify i didn't you know it's yeah. the headline announcement they worry about. It's headline. And, yeah, and yeah. that's not a way you do you, your policy. You've got to take, it's true, you've got to get enough of, the poly, enough of the community to agree with you that this is a big problem, it's an urgent problem, it's got to be dealt with, as with COVID. Suddenly it had to be dealt with. So we all changed our lifestyle very quickly, right? We changed the way we work, we changed the way we travel, what we eat, uh, you know, a lot of attitudes have all changed and they change much faster than anyone imagined. I was talking to some senior public servants recently and they've had a strategy to digitalise the public service for the last several years and it was going to take three (laughs) to five years. It happened in about three to five minutes because suddenly they were all working from home and they'd found a way to do it. This is, is, um, you know, if you get people to agree on the significance of the issue and the urgency of a problem, they'll go with you. And, you know, right now I don't understand on climate when, Every poll that I've seen, every survey has somewhere between 60 and 80% of people saying you've got to do it. (laughs) I think you, you don't want a tin ear in that environment because ultimately it will work against you. You'll let the problem get bigger than you can handle. And so COVID gave, I think COVID's been a dress rehearsal for the sort of things that might happen in a number of areas, climate being a good example, if you don't get ready, if you don't prepare, if you don't listen to the science, if you don't take advice... And, uh, you know, you should learn from that. It's not about we are parallel. going to have more bushfires. We are going to have more droughts. They're going to get worse each time round. I think I'd be preparing better than I see anybody responding today.
0: And it probably takes less change to our lifestyles than COVID itself did anyway for a, some sort of reasonably permanent change to our contrib- contribution to, to, to climate. I mean, that's, that's probably yeah, the, well, I mean, the big one, right? We're prepared to make all these changes for COVID, but it probably doesn't require half of that to make substantial ongoing change for, for the climate.
1: Just look at what people have done in terms of solar power. Yeah. I mean, we've got the highest penetration of rooftop solar per household anywhere in the world. Huh. And because, okay, we've got sun and it's relatively cheap and for whatever reason people have done it. And they changed, they've gone to, look at the efficiency of, of cars, the efficiency of, of white goods they have increased dramatically as people wanted more and more efficient. And they, they have been able to make them more efficient and still lower the costs in a lot of cases. So in that case, you know, people will adjust and they'll adjust quickly. We're great embracers of technology. Look at the rapid pace at which we've picked up mobile phones. I and mean, do you remember your first mobile phone you needed to use to carry it around? <laughs> exactly. And now, okay. you know, they're small and they're not only that, they've got cameras and every other damn thing. They just about, you know, take over your life. And, and, and you depend on the data sources, which is the way you never imagined you do. I remember the Australia card debate in the 80s. Oh, yeah. didn't want anyone to have any access to right. private <laughs> information. Christ, it's everywhere.
0: Google knows and, more than the Australia card ever could.
1: They tried to bring me down in 93 by arguing for time local phone calls. <laughs> Everybody, <laughs> every mobile phone call is a time local call. A, now, these amazing. things are just going so yeah. dramatically. And... Um, if you recognise that that's going to happen, that like I mentioned before, electric vehicles, you will see, and it's happening, places like China, parts of Europe, they are moving to electrification of, of, of regular passenger cars very quickly. And Boris, even in the UK, is committed to, you know, sort of 100% electrification of the passenger cars and, uh, and trucks. I mean, it'll happen. It'll happen very fast. And once you get that sort of momentum, the technology, the layers of technology improvement move it forward. I mean look at solar panels when they were first developed at the University of New South Wales, the university didn't want anything to do with them of course, so one of the Chinese students said <laughs> I'll take it, goes off to China becomes a, the first billionaire in solar. Oh wow. But okay. all they've done is lower the cost by mass, broad mass ma- manufacturing, broad scale manufacturing to the point where solar power is the cheapest power in the world and now you're getting the technology improvements in the panels. So they'll get you know, more, more, greater capacity, more efficiency for the same dollar. And this is just a significant revolution that's happening and it's been driven by other things outside the government because government really hasn't fostered it at all. And so I do think people are willing to make change and they see the urgency of the change and the reason for the change. But if you start like Howard used to do and say, if we do anything about climate, it's going to cost you jobs and growth, when you think, you know, that's wrong, it doesn't have Crazy to cost jobs. Yeah. We actually, ironically, as then pointed out and is now being built, we can build plants in northern Australia to export solar power, wind power, hydrogen, ammonia to, uh, to the Asia-Pacific region. A whole new industry which will replace any drop-off in coal uh,
0: exports in time and that's going to happen anyway. Is it vested interest? Is it old-style thinking? Is it just fear of change? I mean, again, I, I figure oh, 95% of our listeners are listening to you right now, John, saying, great, when, when can we do it? Who do we vote for? What do we do? How do we make it happen? You're, you, you've got the big ideas, plenty of other people are similar in a similar boat. The current crop of politicians, and again, I don't want to cast a massive blanket, but neither side is exactly full. You
1: know, pushing no, these no,
0: big issues. What's going on?
1: Well, to some extent, they blame me because they said Houston made himself a big target, so <laughs> therefore you don't ever want to be a big target. Right, you don't okay,
0: okay.
1: Stand for anything because you'll, you'll lose. Yes. I mean, I even had Albanese on the Twitter today saying something like that. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's true, but having said that, you can take the people with you and you can educate them about the issues. And I think the problem today is that, you know, they, they just see it all as political risks, they have a perceived short term benefit. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily a long-term or sustainable benefit they perceive, but they see it as a short-term benefit if they, if they satisfy some interest group. You mentioned yeah. focus group polling. I mean, I never paid any attention to focus group polling. It depends what question you ask. Yeah. With 30 people in a room and you yeah, ask right. one way, you get an answer. Change the question around slightly, you get a different answer. Yeah. You know, so if you want to base the whole management of government on what the views of 30 people in a room randomly, supposedly randomly picked, Good luck, you know, and it's, um, I remember back in the the early, in the late, in 1990 election, Andrew Peacock would become leader over a coup with Howard and um, the Liberal Party did all this polling and came up with a new election slogan, Andrew is the answer. And so I knew Andrew had a pretty chequered history in politics. I rang up Tony Egerton and I said, if Andrew is the answer, what the hell's the question? What the question? (laughs) You can't run on that, you cannot run on that slogan. And they yeah, dropped right. it pretty much within a week because they just <laughs> got the by everybody. Yeah, exactly. You know, because exactly. it wasn't... And Hawke ran, you know, on this unit in the Liberal Party, if you can't govern yourself, you can't govern the country. That's
0: right, and, that's and right. And yeah, that exactly. showed
1: up in their polling, but they ignored that message. So, you know, this, this, this constructed polling, of, you know, mm. driven by certain individuals' particular agendas mostly, very dangerous. Yeah, But it ends up you don't do anything, right? You don't take a political risk. That's the risk. Well, then the country suffers.
0: The country suffers, right? I mean, that that that's that's the big that's the big cost of all this. Is no matter which side sort of to your point about Albanese, I mean, yeah, I don't know if you're a West Wing fan, but one of the episodes that the, the staff said let Bartlett be Bartlett, the idea of kind of letting letting the president be himself rather than trying to manage him. I kind of want to shout that Albo be Albo at somebody who's boxed him in so tightly into not upsetting the horses, not saying anything of any substance. The Albanese pre-election and the Albanese now almost feel like two different people with the same, the same mask on. It, it, It's a really fundamental change. And I have to believe it's that risk aversion that's keeping him so tightly bound up.
1: Yeah, and you've got handlers, you know, who think that they, you've got to look a particular way. And mm. You know, I remember John Howard when I worked for him he used to always lick his eyebrows trying to get him to bush his men's right? <laughs> When he became Prime Minister, they told me I had to cut him off. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's a good story. Is is there anyone out there? I mean, if if our listeners are saying we love what John's saying, how do we do more of it? What, what is there a path? I mean, you're obviously vocal in the media. You're getting that message out there, which is fantastic. For those people, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a fan, mate. I've got to say, just outright, I love the your columns. I, I share them on Twitter. I know you're on Twitter recently too, by the way. So if you want to follow John on Twitter, do that. Is it John R. Houston? I think is your handle now. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. So follow John on Twitter. Is there a way we get that change? We can, we can talk about the problems. If you had to, you had to kind it, of put your money somewhere. Well, you know, it, it shouldn't take a
1: crisis to bring about the reaction, but that's what COVID's shown. Right. And we've got to learn from that. We've got to recognise that, you know, a lot of these things that are sitting out there can become crises very quickly. Yeah. You know, we've got big issues that we don't want to talk about. Water security, fuel security, waste they impact and they are going to have big impacts on this country. And each one of them is going to have a, a, a nice business solution that's going to make some people some money, going to employ a lot of people, going to result in a lot of investment. It's also going to lower our emissions. So you start moving into all of the... There's sort of a, it's a win-win. These are win-win opportunities. And it's just going to take somewhere to stand up and say we're going to do them. Now, there are people in both parties that believe this but they don't speak out. They're worried about the discipline of, you know, having to stay unified. So they take, they denude Albo, for example, of his substance and they all do the same thing. So they don't say anything. And yeah. suddenly people say, well, why would we change them? Because they don't stand for anything. Yeah, it's self-defeating if you keep running the logic of those arguments. Whereas I do think if you're better off saying, well, we are going to stand, well, Albo doesn't have to promise to solve all the problems or, you know, to be God's gift of the human race like Donald Trump said he was or whatever. But he um, just gene needs gene to stand gene for gene two gene or three things that I really am going to fix. Yeah. My wife used to say to me, the first government that introduced free childcare would be in power forever. <laughs> yeah, I reckon that's true too. Wouldn't and, take it would not um, would it? You know, well, we got close to it for a while. And yeah, then now they've, it away. Cut, they've cut it early, ahead of any other sector. <laughs> And that doesn't make any sense. Politically, they might have perceived some advantage in doing that, but 97% of childcare workers are women. I think you just lost a constituency. You know, so these are, these are bad assessments of where they sit and what the opportunities are. And tell people that, you know, okay, we are going to do something about climate. Now, it's not going to happen today. It's going to happen over the next couple of decades. But we are going to have these objectives and this is the pace and we can, you know, we can work towards it. It happens despite them. I mean, a lot of the, what's happened in renewable energy so far has been held up by government. You know, they take credit for the investment, but basically they didn't help it. Yeah, and yeah. right now, you know, why then? Why build a new gas pipeline for northern Western Australia and never work uh, when you could actually say, look, well, I think we should, uh, you know, start putting charging stations around the country for electric vehicles or we should, you know, facilitate the development of a battery industry in Australia. We're one of the few countries that's got both lithium and graphite so we have, our, we have the potential to run the lithium-ion battery industry worldwide and we don't. We don't make any batteries in necessarily. It's crazy, isn't it? It's not going to cost a lot of money. The technology's proven. I mean, Christ, the Japanese would invest... Panasonic would be banging on your door. They thought they could get access to... You know, <laughs> that, yeah, battery. absolutely.
0: Uh, well, particularly now, Tesla's not going to be its
1: own factory anyway. Unmined. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: So, these are not difficult issues to embrace and be positive about and sell a nice story. Mm-hmm and a lot of politics you know is the narrative you get the narrative right and you get people to agree with what you're trying to do and what you're trying to say and why you're doing it and over time you build a constituency
0: would you go to longer terms john would that would that solve some of the problem giving Uh, governments and oppositions both enough time to prosecute a story before the next election
1: yeah Hawke and i negotiated a four-year parliament behind the scenes and then keating ignored it threw it out (laughs) Um, didn't want to do it. But right, I right. think, you, yeah, longer parliamentary terms and shorter terms for parliamentarians. Oh, okay. Fixing in the five-year the You're there right, for five okay. years. You're not there for a lifetime. You're okay. not there to milk the system. You're there to deliver yeah, an output.
0: right, okay. Yeah, you know,
1: there's a lot in that. And I do think you mentioned before truth in advertising in politics. Hold politicians accountable like the business community for false and misleading conduct, big penalties, clean-up lobbying, um, Campaign funding should be very transparent, should be limited, and I guess in the end you've got to make it public because it's pretty hard to get a constitutional structure that won't allow unions and, com- and companies and so on to fund parties. Yeah. But you guess that's where the source of the problem is in terms I think of the corrupting the process.
0: I think I'd ban donations. Would you, would
1: you go that far? Well, you could ban all, all private donations and just yeah, have all, public all funding. Yeah. You have to I change the public open. funding rules. You yeah. know, because a lot of whackers get, get, get the eligibility for that, but you could yeah, tighten yeah. that. You need a National Corruption Commission, any Corruption Commission. So in any okay, of these, whether it's sports rorts or behavior, bad behaviour by an individual or <laughs> branch stacking or anything, can all get referred to one place.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, that's that an
0: ironic
1: Yeah. They all say, yes, that's a good idea, and they don't do it because they think they can exploit this. It's better than the other bloke.
0: <laughs> really sorry, sorry for the next lot, not for me, exactly. We'll do, it, do it. Someone should do it next time. Um, as a, as yeah. an economist, John, let me take you back to, to your roots a little bit. A couple of key kind of co- common or current uh, theories, ideas floating around. The first one I hit you with is universal basic income. Uh, ideologically, theoretically, practically, does that work? Can, can it work? Is it worth trying your view on universal basic income? Look, it's very
1: hard to generalise on this because there are a lot of different proposals on this, but we sure. have moved fairly much towards it by some, a structure like JobKeeper, right. uh, where whether people are working or not, they get a certain level of income, and as they work, they lose that support and they you know, get an income. And because there's always been problems with the tax system and moving, particularly for women, moving in and out of the workforce, and yeah. not only losing continuity is super, but high marginal tax rates when you, you know, work the third day, you know, or whatever it is. And, um, you know, so you go off a welfare benefit, you go on to a job and then you start paying tax and you lose the benefit. The collective marginal tax rate of those two is sometimes well over 50%. And, yeah. you know, so there's a very strong incentive in the system to discourage that. But putting that aside, we are moving globally to a situation, particularly now that un- long-term unemployment will be more entrenched, as a result of what's happened that governments are going to think of ways in which they have a basic level of support uh, we're doing it a bit in the disability area of course we're doing it in in terms of those who are unemployed uh, but there's the rigidities of the sort i mentioned in the system make it very difficult but i think uh, there will be more and more pressure to think about that as a policy option
0: mm-hmm. i think i think am a fan i think if you if you'd Construct it right as you say, with the appropriate tax breaks and other things. Whether you are disabled, out of work, in work, moving between jobs, just remember that the, the fundamental friction, both on a human level and an economic level, strikes me as maybe it's a utopian idea. But it just it seems right now, as you say, would be the perfect time to try it. If you can let people go in and work as the economy requires it, but let them pay their rent, pay their mortgage, it just feels like that that would be a, a huge boon in a time of potential disruption, concern, even confidence. The confidence people won't spend because they're not they're worried about the next paycheck. If you knew you were getting a JobKeeper, seeker style payment, regardless, I don't know, again, maybe it's utopian, but it feels like it would be of, yeah, of some value at least to keep things going. It,
1: but, I mean, you've got to look at whether you can make it practical. Right now, though, the alternative's been that put somebody on start. They, they have to choose between paying the rent or eating. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and crazy. I say, why, why have we put people, the bottom income, bottom level of the income spectrum, in that position in a wealthy country? We're the top end of town, not paying much tax. Multinationals don't pay any. You know, a lot of those big multinationals, they run up multi-billion dollar businesses in Australia and they shift the profit offshore so Mm -hmm. they don't pay any tax. I mean, where's the equity in that system?
0: Yeah, yeah. The international companies, even the local ones that have marketing hubs in Singapore or something else, and the, the profits have to be made over there. It's a, it, it, Why would the lawmakers tackle that, John? Is it just too hard? Well, There's no they're, interest. They're is trying, there
1: interest groups? They're trying, okay. and it,
0: it, it involves a global cooperation.
1: Okay. But I can remember, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, people would say, you know, Swiss bank account, right? They're absolutely secure. Your information's protected. Your cash is protected. Doesn't happen anymore because that's opened up. It's been the global okay. pressure has been to open these things up, and make people accountable. And oh, that yeah. that momentum has been growing over the last several decades. But uh, we've still got a way to go in terms of you know the the, the corporate tax return. I I think we should get away from a profits based corporate tax. Okay. Profit can be fudged, right? Yeah, Revenue yeah. minus expenditure, and yes. if you, you can shift that off by, by charging yourself from offshore for what you do onshore and take the profit away and yeah. ended up with that profit in the Cayman Islands or somewhere you don't pay any tax. I mean, that system's got to be broken down. And an easy way to do it is either tax cash flow, but more simply just tax revenue. They don't lie about their revenue. They boast about ah. their revenue. <laughs> exactly. you know, Apple does $6 billion in Australia. They can pay a flat percentage of that in tax. And they know it's a business cost. If you want to do business in Australia? It's going to cost us that. Yeah, they'll pass it on anyway. In terms of the price, they won't. It's not as if they have to absorb it, but it gives us tax revenue which we don't otherwise get. Yeah, and uh, so probably. I think uh, I remember as an accounting conference, I recommended a concept like this, and one accountant stood up and said, "Well, you know, there hundreds of them in the room is what? What does this mean for our profession?" <laughs> said, well, about seventy-five percent of this room wouldn't have a job,
0: and <laughs> we'd be better for it.
1: Because it wouldn't be, you wouldn't be, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Spending all your time trying to wheedle around the, the existing yeah. tax laws, yeah. you'd be out there doing positive tax, or positive investment advice, or you know, or, or business structuring advice, uh, which you'd probably be better at than you know, fiddling the tax system anyway.
0: I'll get out of the way. Last one. I'll ask you about uh, modern monetary theory, mate. This has got a lot of currency, particularly no, no pun intended, particularly among the left. Uh, that somehow the old rules need not apply. Uh, you can use taxes and and uh, and, and debt it almost interchangeably and and restate, recreate the system. Any validity to that from your perspective? A uh, pipe dream? Something we should try straight away? Have how, how well, you seen a
1: lot of economists have been looking for the magic pudding for years? <laughs> you know, you can eat it and it's still there, um, and. <laughs> If you think about the principle of what we've got, we've got a Reserve Bank and we've got a Treasury. The Treasury authorises the spending of the money, the Reserve Bank, and it does that, it funds it, let's say, by issuing bonds. And the Reserve Bank buys those bonds, right? So Treasury can issue as many bonds as they like the Reserve Bank can buy as many bonds as they like. And then in the end, that's just them and their balance sheet. You could offset them and write off the debt. (laughs) So we never have any debt, it's just magic. (laughs) And... and, um, you know, nobody thinks about the consequences of thinking that way. Yeah. I looked at the Fed's balance sheet the other day, and it's seven and a half, nearly eight times what it was in 2008. That tells you how much money they've pumped into the US system to keep it afloat. Yeah. They're now buying corporate bonds, and they are all the, mostly, you see, at least 60 or 70% of corporate bonds are junk status, rated junk status. Yep. So they're buying rubbish bonds to get money into the system. You're going to ask yourself, what's the limit?
0: Well, what, what you, I mean, what is the limit? That's what well, worries me. I, I down, wasn't...
1: They hold interest rates down for what purpose? To stimulate yeah. investment? Does it? No. Yeah. People yeah. don't rush out and just get cheap money to invest. They, to some extent, right. they do That's and true. they keep businesses afloat, yeah. keep hedge funds afloat, yeah. New York in the repo market. So I think that there's a whole lot of layers of complexity in this argument about new monetary theory. I mean, it's not... You shouldn't think of
0: it as a magic pudding. Yeah. I, I tend to agree as well john you've been very you've been very very kind with your time i, I I'm not sure if we've I've given up on getting you to run again, but uh maybe your wife will have some issues with that as a, as a fellow Southern Highlands resident too I should say i'm not surprised you make so much sense mate uh, that must <laughs> be the air up here, I reckon. it has got, it's got yeah, to be something good, to that. Yeah. There you go. There you yeah, go. Maybe we just better people, I'm not sure. All right. Uh, John, really appreciate your time. I'm sure others listeners will absolutely have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thank you for your time. That does okay. wrap us up for Motley Fool Money. Uh, if you want a little bit more foolishness, don't forget you can go to fool.com.au and get a whole lot more from the Motley Fool. And of course, please tell your friends you'll get great content like this interview with Dr. John Hewson. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back soon with another dose of foolish insight. Full Fool on.